Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in this episode? This episode, we are joined by Danielle McGuire, author of At the Dark End of the Street, Black Women, Rape and Resistance, a new history of the civil rights movement from Rosa Parks to the rise of black power. In this episode, we will be discussing the widespread rape and murder of black American women in the South through much of the 20th century. And while this is perhaps the most important topic we will discuss, we know this topic may be inappropriate or difficult for some listeners. Please be advised. Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. Episode 8, Rape and Sexual Double Standards in the Civil Rights Movement. Hello, everybody. Today, we are joined by Danielle McGuire, author of At the Dark End of the Street, perhaps the most powerful and significant history I have read in years. The first thing we need to say is that if you teach U.S. history and you have not read this book, it's prerequisite. I'm not sure we can, in this short time, do justice to your book, but Danielle, we're going to try. If you teach civil rights history and it does not start with the rape of black women, then you are doing it wrong. And I hope Danielle can help us prove that to you today. Danielle, thank you so much for your book and for being with us. You're welcome. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank you so much. Danielle, I know this question might be super impossible, but would you start by giving everybody a little summary of your book? Ah, the summary. Um, (laughs) My book is about how rape and resistance to rape sits at the center of the civil rights movement and how if we look at the stories we think we know, like the Montgomery bus boycott, the Selma uh, march and campaign, the Mississippi Freedom Summer or the Birmingham movement, um, and we think that those movements started, you know, with not wanting to move out of a seat on a bus or just wanting to sit at a lunch counter or um, gaining the right to vote, then we're missing out on a huge part of the narrative, which is rooted in the idea that Black women, they have dignity, and that they could move through the world without being assaulted, attacked, kidnapped, or raped. And that was a primary and very large part of the civil rights movement that I think gets left out of the narrative. Yeah. After I read the book, I was like, "What? why aren't we talking about this first? Where, where was this? It's incredible. Yeah, I feel lied to a little bit in my civil yeah. rights history experience. I think that's a really normal response. I should probably tell the narrative of Reese Taylor, just in case the audience doesn't know it. Yeah. Um, her story has become really ubiquitous in the last couple of years, but it's still relatively unknown, I think. Um, so Reese Taylor was an African-American woman who was walking home from a church revival uh, in the fall of 1944 in Abbeville, Alabama. And a carload of young white boys and men, um, you know, traveled along this road and they were looking for someone essentially to kidnap. And they saw her walking and they stopped her and um, and held her up with guns and knives and, and kidnapped her and took her to the woods and they brutally assaulted her for hours. And they made her promise, they made her promise she wouldn't say anything. And she promised she wouldn't say anything. And then she immediately, you know, to the best of her physical ability, went home and immediately told her father and her husband and the local NAACP what happened. Um, And within a couple days, uh, uh, she got a phone call from the Montgomery branch of the NAACP. They had heard about what happened. And they said they were going to send their very best investigator, you know, down to talk to her, to see what they could do. And she said, okay. And she waited. And a couple days later, there was a knock at the door and it was Rosa Parks. Which I think is so cool because the, the image that we have of Rosa Parks is this fatigued, you know, middle-aged housewife who's a seamstress, who's sitting on a bus tired. And in reality, she's been an uh, activist, you know, well, at this, at Reese Taylor's moment, she's a young, newish activist, but. Correct. Yeah. She's the secretary of the Montgomery branch of the NAACP. And when we think of secretary, you know, we have a very gendered idea of what that means. We think she's like taking notes and filing papers. 
Um, but she's a field secretary. And what that means is she's a detective for the NAACP. And she's the one who goes and finds out what happened to people. And um, that's what she did. She took Reese Taylor's testimony and she carried it back to um, Montgomery, where she and the city's most militant activists organized um, a campaign to bring her justice. Uh, that campaign went worldwide. And it, it was huge, something, you know, I had never heard of. We're all fed this really saccharine narrative of um, an arc of progress, a march towards freedom and equality. And when I was in high school, um, I really, truly believed that we were equal and everyone had the same things. And, you know, I didn't know about racism or segregation or a long history of white supremacy. And it was a book that opened my eyes to that. And it made me question everything that... I thought I knew and, you know, eventually led me down this path. But, but I think that's what good history can do. It can do work in the present. You know, it can make us ask those questions and make us be passionate and angry um, and want to know more. So if that did that, if my book did that, I'm really grateful. Thank you. 100%. Yeah. So um, at the end of your book, you mentioned meeting Robert Corbett, um, brother Teresi Taylor. Um, as well as 20 plus family members. What, I mean, what an incredible experience to have gotten a chance to meet with them. But I would love for you to tell us a little more about that moment. And as a white woman, how you began to task of bearing witness to Reese's story and to being present with her family emotionally. Hmm. Reese Taylor, uh, when I was writing, when I was doing the research on her case, in the late 1990s and early 2000s, uh, I could not find her. Um, I had all kinds of archival documents about her case. I had a secret um, investigation ordered by the governor of Alabama into what happened. I had all kinds of petitions and postcards from, you know, um, people who wanted justice in her case, but I couldn't find her. And uh, I wrote the narrative anyway. And uh, I got a, I was, I was doing a postdoc at the time and I, I was giving a talk about her case, uh, you know, it must've been 2006 and I got a phone call uh, and it was from a man named Robert Corbett. And he said, uh, you're talking about Reese Taylor uh, at your next talk. And I said, yes. And he said, well, I'm her brother. And I said, oh my God, you know, like, how did you find me? And he was actually in the habit of Googling his sister's name. Since he had retired, um, he, he, he was looking for information on what happened to her because he made it his life's mission really to um, find her assailants, to punish them, you know, to get some kind of justice for her. And when he retired, he moved back to Alabama. And this is just what he did every day. Wow. So it's incredible. So he, he Googled her name and my name came up, which was very unusual because at the time, if you Googled Reese Taylor's name, all you got were references to recycling, R-E-C-Y. There was no Reese Taylor on the internet. Like there was nothing written, you know, there was nothing you could find. Um, and so he hit my name and that was a shock to him. And it was shocking to him, especially because I had a date. I had the date of the assault. And they had forgotten the day. They knew the year, you know, they, they knew all the details of everything that happened, but they had forgotten the day, which made it hard for him to search newspapers. Okay. So anyway, um, we talked and talked and talked, and he told me all kinds of things. And I had already written my dissertation at this time, so I was like revising it for a book. And uh, we were coming to the end of the conversation, and you know, I just assumed that his sister had passed away because he hadn't said anything yet. And so right before we got the phone, I said, Mr. Corbett, is your sister still alive? And he said, well, yeah. Do you want to talk to her? <laughs> I, what? I said, oh my God, yes, I do. And he's like, oh, great. Well, let's set it up. And uh, so, so we actually had a phone call. And I did an oral history of her on the phone. We had a really, really lovely conversation. And she was very forthright and um, upfront about what happened, to my surprise, to be honest. Um, and I said, I'd really love to meet you in person. And she said, okay, well, you know, come to Alabama. I said, okay. So uh, I drove to Alabama. I had a six-month-old baby. And my husband and I drove there with the baby. 
And I brought with me the box of documents that I had recovered, you know, and they were from all over the country, um, most of which were in Alabama, the Department of Archives there. Um, but there were a lot of other things scattered throughout the country in different archival collections of um, activists and leftists and labor le leaders and stuff like that. And I brought it all with me and, um, and I knocked on the door um, and I walk in and there's literally like the whole family. I was very nervous because like you said, I mean, here I am, this, this youngish white woman from the North, um, you know, asking hard questions with no experience really in oral history um, or any experience talking about trauma. And the women just started passing my baby around. And it was kind of remarkable. You know, I saw my baby as like a hindrance to my work in some ways, like, oh, I wish I didn't have to bring my child. But actually what it did, I think, what I what it felt like was that it gave us something that we all had in common. We were all mothers. And right, and Reese you know. Taylor, she was a mother when she was raped by those That's right. men. That's right. She had a very young child, a two or three-year-old at the time. And, um, and, you know, and the whole family was there. And so Ruby was passed. My daughter's name is Ruby and Ruby was passed from knee to knee, you know, and they, everyone was cooing at her and, she, you know, she was smiling and making people laugh. And it just, it just sort of, um, it, it, it created this common ground and it humanized me. Um, but then the thing that really mattered was that I brought all these documents. Most people don't know how to do archival research. And, uh, and they certainly didn't know how, and it's not like anyone in the town was going to help them do that work. So, so the box of information was really affirming to them. That's what I think blew my mind. It's like, how did no one ever go after this story? And you know, you're coming to it in the two thousands. It's like that, that just blew my mind that there was well, it's important. It, it, it's important to note that, um, that black journalists did cover her story in the 1940s. Right. Um, and, and, and because they did, I could find a lot of information about it. So they did write about them, but other historians of the civil rights movement hadn't really considered it. And I think part of the reason why is because they really didn't see bodily integrity and sexual assault in particular as a civil rights issue. Right. And, and part of that is related to the fact that the NAACP didn't really make it you know, uh, a feature of their um, campaigns, especially into the 1960s. It's interesting because I actually knew Reese Taylor's name. In 2017, I was in D.C. for the Women's March, and my husband and I drove through the night and uh, and went down there, and we, we, you know, we marched all day, and it was a funny thing because I had been to D.C. the spring before, and the African American History Museum had just opened. Yeah. And, um... And so, it, but I'd never been able to get in because it's like, it's like brand new. So everybody wants to go and I couldn't get in. And so during the women's march, nobody was going to the museums. Nice. <laughs> so I went, I went into the museum and my husband and I, we looked, you know, we, we did the whole tour and it was amazing. Um, and whenever I'm touring museums, I'm thinking about, okay, how can I, you know, taking pictures, how can I add this to my curriculum? Um, you know, there might be subtopics that are interesting. And so I have this like list that I keep all the time of topics that kids could do for research. And, so Reese Taylor was on this wall of, um, it was sort of like, again, like you said, sort of in the corner. These are the women that were raped in the 1930s and 40s. And I was like, what rape? Like, what does that have to do with anything? And there was a little blurb about Reese Taylor, and I thought that was really interesting. And so I did um, a little bit of research independently into her, and it probably, you know, everything I was reading was probably due to the work that you did, because I'm reading it a decade after your your book, your dissertation, and and your book is coming out. Um, but you know, I think it was really hard for me because this is now like four years into being a history teacher, and I'm just now learning this name, so that's super embarrassing. Um, so I guess one question we want to make sure we ask you and we ask everybody is why do you think women's stories, even when like Reese Taylor, she is the beginning of the Montgomery bus boycott. She brings Rosa Parks. What is it about rape that made the NAACP 
I don't know. And, or, is, or is there something else that you think is there? Those are a lot of questions. Yes. And, yeah. <laughs> we, we could talk about the Montgomery bus boycott, for example, in this context. So one of the things that I found out in my book is that the bus boycott was really rooted in Black women's mistreatment on the buses. And it wasn't just about where they sat. It was about the fact that when they got on the bus, they were sexually harassed. They were touched inappropriately. They were physically abused. They were talked to in ways that were vulgar and rude. Um, and then they were also physically assaulted, right? And and this was true on the public buses and in taxis and in other public spaces throughout town. And Black women began to organize against it. That That's what they complained about in their complaints to the bus companies. It's what motivated their organizing, you know, in clubs and stuff. And it's ultimately what started the boycott. But the way the newspapers covered it at the time, both white and black newspapers, were that, you know, Rosa Parks was arrested and, um, and, and Martin Luther King, who was a new preacher in town, who was, you know, 26 years old. I didn't realize how young he was. So yeah. young. I, I I don't know why I thought he was at like at least in his forties. I should have probably nope. compared dates, but wow, twenty six. Yeah, twenty six. I mean, and part of part of the reason why there's so much focus on him is because he is remarkable. You know, he is he is amazing, and he is an incredible orator. And you know, but they they choose him to lead. You know, to be the public face of the boycott because he's a man, and it's the 1950s, right? And because he doesn't, you know, he's new. He's yeah. not like, he, he, you know, they don't want to lose their houses and their churches. And they think he's kind of expendable. So mm-hmm. he's an easy target. So the newspapers focus on King and they focus on the things King says, which is, which is political and geared towards a national narrative that will help their legal case, right? It's not the truth about what happened. You know, they're not going to say, look, our women have been, you know, sexually harassed and assaulted on the buses for a decade, and we've been dealing with rapist, racist cops as well. Uh, but no, they're not going to say that because that's, you know, it's the Cold War. Um, it's McCarthyism. There's gender protocols in the 1950s that, you know, we wouldn't pay as much attention to now. Um, you know, they have a kind of very, you know, tricky triage that they have to master in order to tell a public story um, that will bring them sympathy and ultimately, you know, they hope federal intervention, right? So, so the, so the newspaper narrative is one that it's heavily focused on King and men and men's experiences. Um, And, and there's a reason for that, right? The problem is that then, you know, for historians, like we do go to newspapers as the first draft of history. Um, And, and we can do much better work now because so much archival uh, material is, is um, digitized, and also because we've had this whole social history movement that's brought us women's history, and has brought us Black women's history, and stuff like that. But the first books on the civil rights movement were very much similar to the newspaper articles that you saw in the 1950s and the 1960s. Um, that wasn't focused on you know ordinary people, and particularly on Black women, especially the kinds of Black women who made the boycott possible, domestics, right? Working class, yeah. black women. Yeah, it almost feels like there was this story that was told, and that's just like what everybody started telling. And um, with Rosa Parks, it's fictionalized, right? Here's this, like, sweet housewife, and that's, like, not her story. Um, right. So, but, but think about it. At the time, you know, at the time, they couldn't say. They couldn't say Rosa Parks was a Garveyite. You know, someone who believed in Marcus Garvey's black nationalist ideas was a radical anti-rape activist. They couldn't say that in the 1950s, mm-hmm. right? Not during the Cold War, because they would they they would be considered communists and dangerous radicals. So, so on some level, even the movement played up Rosa Parks's dignity. You know, her age. You know, it's it's a civil rights organization that makes the comic book. Uh, you know, to teach nonviolence 
you know, to other people, but they're the ones who create the narrative of her having tired feet. So you start with your book with Reese Taylor and bringing Rosa Parks to town, but there's actually many chapters before you get into the Montgomery bus boycott and you start talking about Rosa Parks. And as I was reading, I was overwhelmed. Like it was, it was like, it was hard and it was that necessary, like white privilege, hard moment that I needed to sit with, um, to listen to, you know, name after name of black woman in America who is raped. Her rapists are known and there is no legal recourse for them whatsoever. And the juxtaposition of the situation where you have, you also name white women who are falsely accusing black men of raping them. And you talk about this false narrative of sort of the black man who's out to rape all the white women um, and the impact this, you know, I just, I was thinking about how white women are getting away with these false accusations and black women who are legitimately being raped. There's, there's evidence like in, in the white women's cases, they had very weak cases of weak proof. They just sort of like point to a guy that they like barely can name. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I, can you just talk a little bit about this juxtaposition of, of you know, white women rape cases and, and black women? Because it's overwhelming. Yeah, it is. And, and, it, and it's rooted in slavery. White men, you know, sat atop a, a hierarchy, a political, economic, social um, hierarchy. They sat on the top and they could do anything they wanted. And they particularly could do anything they wanted with... Um, enslaved people, right? Um, and they did that with black women in particular. They raped them with impunity and in a way that I found to be almost ritualistic. Um, and that and those practices continued after slavery ended. Um, white men, I I believe, I you know that I think the evidence shows that they used rape as a political weapon, the same way that soldiers, engaged in war, use rape as a political weapon. Um, they did it to assert their power. They did it to um, threaten black families. They did it to terrorize black communities. Um, they did it because they could. And they covered it up by blaming black men for the very things that they did. Uh, and they used that narrative, that fake news narrative, right? of black men being rapists to solidify white supremacist support um, and political support for a one-party authoritarian South where white people were on top and black people were on the bottom. Um, white women were in on the game, right? Um, and white women were silent about what they knew was happening to black women, often in their old households. Um, some white women were explicitly complicit by helping um, find black girls for their husbands to assault. Um, some white women, you know, violated racial norms at the time by falling in love with or having illicit affairs, even, you know, non-consensual affairs with black men. Um, and then when they got caught, you know, instead of taking responsibility for their own actions, they would accuse the black men of rape, knowing that they would be protected. There's legal precedent for that that goes back to slavery because um, it was legal for white men to rape their their black slaves um, and that the the children that they produced would forever be slaves. And so it sort of said, like, yeah, keep, keep raping your slaves. This is great. Um, and then for white women, uh, they would be fined if they were in relationships with slaves so or black men right right and and they made it and then of course they made interracial marriage illegal right which was a pillar of enslavement um a, a legal pillar that didn't fall until 1967 you know that allowed white men to do whatever they wanted to do with enslaved women um and with white women while at the same time uh controlling you know, the marital and sexual choices of white women and, of course, black men, um, all of which kept them on top this, you know, hierarchy and in control. 
Um, but it's shocking to see how, you know, when I was in graduate school, there were, there were a lot of really new books on um, w- enslaved women and their experiences uh, and their resistance to uh, their enslavement, their bondage. Um, and I think reading those books is what really made me question, you know, were these practices still in play when slavery ended? And that's what made me start looking for these cases. And I found out they were everywhere. And of course, Black people always resisted these things. It was just, where could they go? Yeah, and like who's going to help them? Who, especially right. if there's laws in place that are going to ban them from even approaching an, a police officer for help. Right. Well, police officers couldn't always be trusted because police officers were guilty of committing the same kinds of crimes against Black people. Yeah, you detail so many examples of that where there are, like, the number of times you mention a, a rape yes. that's happening and the rapists are in uniform. I was blown, I mean, maybe I'm dumb, but I was blown away. I don't know if I was like, at like, I know that this happens because people in power abuse power. And that has been seen time and again in our, in our country and in our own lives. And in some of the work that I even do, it's, you know, we see that all the time, but it, it was, there's, who do you go to? Like who can help? Like, I think you always look for the helpers. You look for that moment. Like, okay, okay. This, this is the year when this happened to Racy Taylor, the whole system came down. I know it kept happening for decades after it's like that, that was more like, so this didn't just happen once or twice. And I think that that is such a good parallel too to happening right now. It's like how many more people have to die and suffer at the hands of people in power for anyone to change it. You know, we have this long, long history of this kind of abuse. What's interesting is that, you know, next to that history is also a history of resistance by Black women against this abuse and this legacy, you know. So, you know, when we go back and we really pay attention to even, you know, Black women suffragists, right, Mm -hmm. they're also talking about not just the right to vote, but the right to vote because they need judges and coroners and juries that can protect them from some from rape and sexual assault. I mean, it's something I'd be Wells talks about. Yeah. It's interesting because when we were talking about suffrage in a previous episode, we were talking about how black women were saying, yeah, 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 the right to vote and lynching and rape. But it's interesting in your book, you get this sense that the NAACP is saying, yeah, we're focused on civil rights, not rape. Like that's like a women's issue, and so where, like, where do black women fit if white women won't take them and black men won't back them? The NAACP is banned in Alabama and Texas and other states. They can't operate, um, and so they have to, they have to walk a very fine line um, between being a respectable organization that's about legal rights, right, and and enforcing the Constitution, which is really what they were, you know, publicly after. Um, but the national NAACP uh, really avoids what Roy Wilkins would have called in by the late 1950s a sex cases, right? But it is, but it is wild, and you see local chapters really, I think, you know, doing the best that they can. You know, in one case in Mississippi in the 1940s, Ruby um, Pigford, this horrific case. That I have a whole backstory to this that I'd love to tell you about too. Um, but she she's a young girl, black girl who, um, you know, is picked up by a white man one day and he says he needs a babysitter and uh, he'll pay her, you know, 70 cents an hour. Um, and would she come with them? And, and she did. And she went with him. And of course, you know, he didn't have children and he didn't need a babysitter. Uh, he wanted to take her to a bar. She refused to go in. And so he brutally beat her, raped her and tied her to the back of his car and dragged her through town until she was nearly dead and then left. The local NAACP in the 1940s in Mississippi, Meridian, Mississippi, you know, was was nearly powerless. I mean, you know, who could they appeal to in Mississippi, right? Which is essentially a fascist state. Um, and so they know the only place they can go is the black press. And they, they, they send photos and information to the Pittsburgh Courier, hoping for, you know, sort of a national attention. They need, they need national attention. Yeah, to, they need a spotlight to make this right to, to force someone in Mississippi to pay attention or at the very least to bring, you know, some kind of national assistance. Um, 
and they don't get the kind of attention that they need. Um, and I, and I, you know, I, I actually lost track of her case after that. Like I couldn't find her in the archive. You know, I don't, I don't, I didn't know what happened to her. Uh, it was such a horrific and awful case. Um, I didn't know if she survived. And what's amazing is that a couple of years ago, I got a Facebook message from um, a man with the last name of Pigford, James Pigford. And I, you know, it had been a long time since I wrote that story. And I thought, Pigford, I know that name. And I started thinking, I'm like, oh, my God, I wonder if it's Mississippi. Yeah. It was. It was her brother. And he and his he and his sister and his niece had read my book. And it was the first time they had ever encountered um, his sister's narrative anywhere in a book. And they couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe that someone knew about it and that someone wrote about it. And they wanted to meet with me because they wanted to tell me what happened after she was assaulted. What happened? It's unbelievable. <laughs> so, you know, of course it's, it's awful. Uh, her siblings see her. She's in horrible condition. She's in the hospital for months recovering. And at the time uh, she had small children. So the family sent the children up to Detroit to live with an older sibling, their aunt. And, and she recovered in the hospital. And then eventually she came up to Detroit. Uh, it was late 50s, early 60s. And she went to college and got her nursing degree. Stop. And she didn't just survive. She moved and she created a whole new life for herself and helped her children become successful in the North. It's just this remarkable story of um, the kind of power that she found in herself, right? After someone tried to take so much from her, everything. Um, everything. And the fact that we don't know stories like that, both the horror of what happened to her, but also her um, remarkable triumph after that, is sad. Like we need to know these stories. Yeah, um, they're so important. And you know, it, and and black girls need to know her story because they need yes. to know that if something horrific happens to you, and white girls too. I mean, we all need to know this. Something really horrific happens to you, that there's a way forward. You know, there's also such an opportunity there, Danielle, that you lifted that voice up in that story to, sorry, I'm like a blubbering mess over here. It's incredible. It's what we should be doing with our positions of privilege is telling the story. You know, we only believe things when they're in books or when they're written down or they're in an archive or, you know, and this is part of, this is part of a legacy of violence, you know, other violence against black people, which is that their stories aren't in the archive, you know? And so the oral, the oral history is sometimes negated as less important or less powerful or less valid. Um, and, and these are the kind of stories that are enhanced by the oral. They told their stories. It's just that so many people chose not to listen. Well, that was really powerful. We're going to take a short break and we're going to be right back. For lesson plan ideas and how to teach women's history, visit our website, www.remedialherstory.com. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Remedial Herstory. If you think what we're doing is needed, please consider joining our Patreon community. Patreon allows you to sponsor a podcast with a small donation. Patrons get access to bonus materials, extended episodes, insider information, and gear. Patrons who give at the $10 tier will receive a Remedial Herstory sticker. We want to sincerely thank some of our patrons for their contributions. Kent and Jamie Heckel from Ohio have been some of our biggest fans from the beginning. Thank you so much for your contribution. And a huge thank you to Bridget Erlinson from Connecticut. As an educator, your endorsement and passion for equitable education means a great deal. Thank you for your support and endorsement. You can find a link to our Patreon page on our website, www.remedialherstory.com. Or you can go to patreon.com and search for Remedial Herstory. So welcome back, everyone. We're still here with Danielle. Claudette Colvin's story is also lesser known. Her arrest and trial is significant because she is a young, she is young and she pleads innocence, but it didn't 
I didn't realize that she was rejected as a potential symbol for the movement because of her pregnancy. So could you tell everyone a little bit more about that? And uh, you'd explained how lawyers like Thurgood Marshall was basically taking cases like triage and only taking cases that kind of had perfect defendants. Yeah, Claudette Colvin is really interesting. And people, I think, know more about her now than they used to. Um, We forget that there there were lots of Black women and girls who rode the buses who refused to abide by, you know, the rules of segregation and Jim Crow. They just refused. And Claudette Colvin was one of those people. Um, She's a teenager. She's in high school. She is really smart. She's passionate about history. She's actually uh, in the NAACP Youth Council, where she is a student of Rosa Parks. Um, You know, we forget that Rosa Parks also mentored all these young girls. Um, And she, uh, you know, she's used to getting on the bus to go home and uh, having the bus driver tell her to move. And sometimes she doesn't, you know. And that day, the bus driver asked her to give up her seat so some white people could sit down. And she she said no. And this is, you know, eight months before Rosa Parks does it, approximately. Um, She says no. And she says in her later testimony, I thought the bus driver would just yell and then move on. So we know from her saying that that this is what she's done in the past, right? That, That this is a practice of hers, like not obeying. Um, but this time the bus driver decided to have her arrested and, uh, and he's, and he's awful. You know, he, he, he calls the police, he locks the bus doors so no one can get out and he waits for the police to come. When the police come on board, um, they say, you know, what's the problem? And the bus driver says, it's her, you know, I've had trouble out of that thing before. And, you know, he, he thingifies her. He, he turns her into something that's, you know, not human. Uh, and which gives the police permission really to do inhuman things to her. Um, and they grab her and pull her off the bus. And there's this narrative of her that I think is really rooted in like Taylor Branch's history of the civil rights movement of this kind of like wild, nasty, you know, foul mouthed teenager. But that's not the truth. You know, she resisted, but she didn't do anything that was disreputable. Um, in fact, she was terrified. And she says in her testimony later that, she, you know, she started to recite the Lord's Prayer and that she, you know, tried to sort of conjure up the spirit of the people she had learned about from Rosa Parks in the NAACP Youth Council. So the police take her, they throw her in the back of the police car, and she's terrified. And she says in a later interview, I think it's a 50th anniversary of the Montgomery bus boycott interview for the Montgomery Advertiser. This is wild. She says, you know, I, I didn't know what they were going to do. I was afraid they might rape me. I mean, when I read that, I, I thought, well, okay, surely the interviewer would have asked a follow-up question. Like, well, what do you mean? Why would they rape you? Yeah. But they didn't. And, and she just kept talking. But it says, to me, what it said was that she had, she had at the age of 15, already understood that resistance to segregation might bring not just racial violence against her because she's a black girl, but sexualized violence against her. Like she knew that it was going to be one or the other or both. Right. Um, And that's what she feared the most. She already knew that that's what police did. So that tells me a couple of things. One, that that's so ubiquitous that a 15 year old black girl knows that that's possible and that it could happen to her and that it's something she should fear. Right. Yeah. For just refusing to move out of her seat. Um, so Claudette Colvin ends up being arrested. And of course, you know, black women in Montgomery are already upset with the buses because, you know, I talked about earlier how they've been complaining about mistreatment on the buses and, and being brutalized there. And Joanne Robinson, who's the leader of the Women's Political Council in Montgomery, which is a a more middle-class Black women's organization, but they're pretty radical, you know. Um, Joanne Robinson is furious when she finds out. Like, she's ready to burn the city down. And and she basically decides that there's going to be a boycott. And she goes to Edie Nixon, who's head of the NAACP at the time, 
and who's also um, head of the Alabama branch of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, which is the nation's largest all-black union. So this guy is connected, right? He's connected yeah. to A. Philip Randolph. He's connected to activists, black activists all over the country. He knows how to run a campaign. He knows what's needed. Uh, he's careful. He doesn't want to die, right? <laughs> uh, he doesn't want the people that he is fighting for to die. And Joanne Robinson comes to him and says, you know, we got to do it. You caught at Colvin's been arrested and we, we need to boycott. And Edie Nixon says, we can't, we can't do it with her. Um, she's, she's a teenager. You know, we, we can't trust how she'll be on the stand if we take it to court. Uh, and he goes to visit her and finds out, you know, she is pregnant and he, and, and he's like, we can't do it. Now this goes back to what I was saying earlier about even the cold war and what, what, you know, what's important in, at times in the black community is politics of respectability, right? Like in order to, this is so crazy to even say it out loud, but in order to win constitutional rights, black people sometimes felt like they had to use a politics of respectability, sort of prove that they were worthy of citizenship, right? To show white people that they were respectable so that they could get the things promised yeah. to them by the constitution. So um, like to prove worthiness of all that. Right, right. And so you have to present yourself as respectable, as as deserving of, you know, the responsibility of of citizenship. Never mind that the constitution already says you're a citizen, right? Um, and so and so there's a reason why it's called the politics of respectability, right? They they know it's a politics. It's not like it's not like they don't it's not like they think they're not worthy of citizenship. They just know right. that this is how white people think and this is how they have to act. So um, so Edie Nixon tells Joanne Robinson, like, I'm sorry, you can't use her. And Joanne Robinson is furious. I mean, she is furious. She she's mad. She decides to boycott the buses on her own. Her and a few women decide that's what they're gonna do anyway. <laughs> who who cares what Edie Nixon has to say? And she's especially mad because this is the second time he's done this to her. You know, there's another black woman who is 18, um, Mary Louise Smith, who was also arrested on the bus, also for refusing to move. And Edie Nixon is the one who decides that Mary Louise Smith is not the best candidate to lift up as their symbol of oppression because she's very dark complected. So here you have some of that intra-racial racism or like, you know, the way white supremacy eats away at even black people's ideas of their own sense of worth. Um, and, uh, and because she's really poor and her father's got a drinking problem. Um, you know, Edie Nixon says like, eh, eh. So Joan Robinson is furious. And, um, and when Rosa Parks is arrested, you know, Joan Robinson is like, I'm not going to Edie Nixon. I am with, this is on, like, I don't yeah. care what he has to say. We're having the boycott. He said no to me twice. I'm leaving. He's following. Right. Yeah. And how many more that, women have to stand up? <laughs> We're done with this. And, and Edie Nixon in many ways is like shamed into having the boycott at that point. I mean, you know, look, he knows Rosa Parks. It's, you know, they're best friends, basically. They're comrades in the fight. They have been for you know, a good decade and a half. So Rosa Parks is the right person for this. And he knows that. And so, you know, it's not going to be hard to convince him, you know, to have a boycott with Rosa Parks. But Joanne Robinson doesn't even ask. She's just like, I'm done with you. Yeah, good for <laughs> um, her. But Claudette Colvin, what's really interesting is so she ends up still being uh, in the legal case against uh, segregation on bus transportation in Montgomery, and um, and it and they're they're still going to use her as a legal case. Well, they ran into a problem because once uh, city officials found out they were still going to use her in the legal case, they changed her arrest to uh, being arrested for disorderly conduct as opposed to violating Jim Crow law. Um, and so that, you know, even when you look at that story, it's, it's very similar to the ways in which black girls and black boys, um, but black girls in particular are, uh, their behavior is deemed disorderly. Yeah. Well, and it's against the entire narrative of what women are supposed to be, right? You're supposed to conform and be compliant and, and right. That didn't change because of race, right? There comes a point in your book where black women basically call out black men for not being able to defend them. This is pretty far along. Um, and essentially black manliness is on the line. And 
you also talk about this in, in your epilogue and how hard it was for black men to do anything to defend, you know, quote unquote, their women. And um, I felt really bad for them because while at the same time you are detailing, you know, rape after rape after rape, you're also going into detail on lynching after lynching after lynching of black men. And, um, I, you know, I was like, oh, don't, don't beat up on these guys any more than the system already is. Um, but I'm wondering, like, was I wasn't beating up on them. No, 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 not you, <laughs> not you, the black women in the time. And, um, and so I, I'm wondering, like, is this an inevitable progression, um, of, the civil rights movement because of how deeply ingrained gendered expectations were. Like if women continue to be raped, it's the men's fault because men are supposed to defend their women or well, black women were, black men were denied the opportunity to protect their house and their, their families, the way that white men were assumed, you know, to be able to do that at all costs and all times. Right. They were denied that. Um, And when they tried to, they were, they were brutally reminded that that's not their place. Right. Um, and I think for me, the best example of that, uh, there's a couple of them, but one is when I was meeting with Reese Taylor's family and the whole family was talking about how, uh, after Reese was assaulted, um, you know, she came back to her home and her and her husband and daughter moved in with her father. And her father uh, was very uh, afraid that the family would be targeted for violence. In fact, Reese Taylor moved in with her father because their house was firebombed. Um, and her father, uh, you know, had a shotgun like most men in Alabama did at the time, particularly white and black families, you know, probably equal measures. Um, and he sat up in an old tree outside their yard every single night to protect the house. And when Reese's um, younger brother found out about what happened. When he found out about what happened, he came home and he told his father he was going to go, he, you know, he knew who the guys were. He was going to go and kill them. And they had to talk him out of it. They had to sit him down and say, okay, if you do that, right, then they're going to come here and they're going to kill me. That's not actually going to be helpful to us. Um, and it, you know, it's real sobering, right? I mean, what do you, what do you do? Right. But then there's stories like Robert Williams, who is an armed, uh, who's an advocate of armed self-defense. He's an NAACP leader in Monroe, North Carolina. You know, he formed a militia of black World War II veterans uh, to protect their community from night riders. And they were very successful. So, so he actually was a real um, contender for, you know, popular black leadership um, in 1959, so much that him and Martin Luther King debated at the NAACP annual convention. Uh, and, you know, Martin Luther, you know, we didn't have the sit-ins yet. We didn't have the freedom rides. We didn't have Birmingham or Mississippi. So King was just Montgomery. And, you know, what Robert Williams was saying, like, hey, we have a right to arm self-defense, uh, you know, that resonated with a lot of people who were under constant threat of white um, white terrorism. So when Betty Jean Owens, a black college student, was kidnapped and raped in Tallahassee in 1959, Robert Williams made a really profound argument saying that if her dates, you know, the black men that she was with and her friend was with, if they had had guns, then then the white men wouldn't have been able to rape Betty Jean Owens, to kidnap her, right? And yeah. they would have been able to protect them. And and that and that's a kind of narrative that Malcolm X would reiterate, right, uh, in the early '60s, and that a lot of people started, um, you know, saying, "You know, he's got a point." It was interesting that you ended the book with Joan Little's case, and um, I needed to hear her case because she is, I, I don't know, at least from your book, it made me feel like the first woman to actually win a case against her assailant. And well, Betty Jean Owens did. That's true. That's true. Good point. Um, 
but it, it was interesting because I was like, oh, there, I get my happy ending. It's okay for black women. And then you put it in the context of 2020 and Breonna Taylor, and I'm having a really hard time being satisfied with the happy ending, um, which it's, it's not necessarily a happy ending, but, um, and I not, may not have been what you were going for, but I'm curious, you know, in lieu of everything going on this summer, where where do you feel we are today with the lives of black women and, and where they stand? Ooh, you know, I think, I think we're in a really dangerous place. And I think that black women have more power than, you know, political power um, than they've ever had. I sometimes feel like we're on the edge of a, a, another kind of um, redemption period where, you know, white militias and Klan members and terrorists took back control of the South after Reconstruction and made a one-party authoritarian region, and the North looked away. Yeah. Um, but I also feel like, you know, Black women are also having this remarkable moment um, where, you know, I think for once— Finally, a lot of people are letting black women lead because, you know, they've always led and they've mostly been the most fierce defenders of democracy in America. Um, they've been right about just about everything uh, in, in social movements. They've done the work. They put in the time. And I think finally, a lot of people uh, have noticed that and are saying like, OK, OK, like you lead now, you know. And that's where Black women need to be. Black women need to be centered. When we put our most vulnerable population at the center where they belong, and we work to make them safe and secure and free, then we all get to experience that. Yeah. Danielle, talking to you tonight has been one of the most amazing experiences. And reading your book was um, hard and important. And I feel like I am going to be a better teacher, uh, because I've read your book. So, um, I know, like I could talk, it sounds like we could just talk forever about it. And I think the best thing that our listeners can do, uh, from this point forward is read, read your book because, um, we have only like brushed the surface of, of what is in there. Um, so thank, like, thank you from the bottom of my heart for joining us. It has been incredible. I could listen to you for like an endless amount of hours. Um, so thank I could talk for endless amount of hours. So perfect. Oh, um, great. That's a good combo. <laughs> this has been a great conversation and I hope that we can continue it and, uh, that we can, you know, lean into the hard history together. Yeah. And that includes our listeners. So for those of you that are history teachers, I've created a lesson plan for you using Reese Taylor's rape case. Uh, as an example of how rape is at the beginning of the civil rights movement. You can find that lesson on our website, www.remedialherstory.com. Brooke, you want to sign us off? I'm Brooke Sullivan. I'm Kelsey Eckert. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Kelsey. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.